Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. My guest today's work has taken her to everywhere from the poorest parts of the world in the back streets of Bangladesh to the most glamorous of red carpets at the Oscars. She's an award-winning journalist, trailblazing in terms of eco-journalism and fashion. She's on our screens almost daily on a little programme on primetime BBC One called The One Show. And she's hopefully going to clear up some tricky questions I'm always asking myself about the impact of travel on our planet. Welcome, Lucy Siegel. Shall we start with Africa? Because you're, mm. you're fresh, almost fresh mm. off a plane from Africa. What were yeah. you doing in Africa with Ellie Goulding? Yes, I went to the third UN Environmental Assembly. And it's in Kenya, because that's where UN Environment is based. And Ellie Goulding was becoming a goodwill ambassador for UN Environment, which is brilliant news. And um, yeah, so I, I went with, you know, hello, gate crasher. We went to Nairobi, flew into Nairobi, and then transferred immediately to the little domestic airport and flew to North Mara, where we stayed in an amazing lodge and did a little bit of safari. And then we went in to see the Maasai. Bear in mind, I've only ever been to a zoo before. So can you imagine the transition? It was like a Disney film. Like before the plane had even landed, my friend Hannah was looking out the window going, there is a rhino. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. I mean, it was, and and literally every animal seemed to be there just lining up, waiting for our arrival. It was insane. There were so many beasts. Because it's in their natural environment, that's what freaked me out. Because, as I say, I'd only ever really been to a zoo, and many years ago, because I'm not sure if I even agree with zoos now. So it was such a head spin. And it was like, you know what it is? I don't want this to sound fatuous, but it made me realise how well observed Disney cartoons are. Because that the lot, first thing that occurred yes, to you? because it was so out of my realm of experience that it looked like a cartoon. And there were, like, zebras do behave in a weird way, and they're quite sort of, like, attitudinal. And then lions, I mean, we saw some lions just after they'd fed, and they were lying around like the blooming kings of the jungle, which is apparently what they are. So everything was, was very, that was my only real reference point. But seeing them in that natural environment is also can trick you as well. Because we had a guy with us, Teddy, who is a mixed race guy and his father is from Kenya, so indigenous from the Mara and his mother is white. So he'd grown up with a foot in both camps, if you like, 
he was saying to us, don't be fooled, because you look around now and there seems so many animals, but his grandfather would think, where are all the animals? And his great-grandfather would think that even more. So it goes back and back and back generations. So I felt like my brain was being filled with all of this stuff about conservation, which I haven't even thought about. And there is no substitute for seeing stuff in the wild, which is an incredibly overprivileged, ridiculous thing to say. But having got to... 42, 43, without having having that experience. I'm glad that I had it. You know, when you see those horrific pictures of hunters, including prominent people, you know, celebrities that we know, Donald Trump's children, uh, for a start, their gun in their hand with a, a dead animal in front of them that they've just hunted. Does it make that, if it can even be more poignant, does it make it more poignant? Yeah, I don't know how the guys who live there and deal with poaching manage to abate their anger about that sort of stuff. In the North Mara, there is no hunting allowed. I know in different regions, so I know in Rwanda, for example, there is a conservation project where there's a certain amount of hunting. And I have a real problem with that because I can see I can see the economic short-term imperative for that. But I think if you look at it longer term, it is so easy for idiots who unfortunately are largely the people that sign up for this sort of thing. I don't know anybody who's sane who would do it. And they go out and they shoot the wrong animals sometimes because also accidents happen and they take out the pack leader or something like that. And it applies to wolves as it applies to lions. Then you are basically responsible for killing a whole pride or a whole pack because the whole thing will fall apart. Like we know ecology is so interrelated and everything, there's a there's a cascade effect for everything you do. So it's not possible just to have people trophy hunting, just taking out a wounded animal or an old animal. And who are you to do that anyway? I mean, immoral doesn't really cover it. I mean, it's it's crazy on every level. It goes against everything we know about conservation, in my opinion. And I know people will argue about with me about this. And scientists will sometimes argue about this. Conservation scientists will argue about this. But what I can say about the North Mara was the elephant project that they are doing is very, very good. So a lot of the elephants are now collared. So they have a big uh, uh, radio frequency tag on top of them. I mean, they look even more like a cartoon. And that's because a lot of elephants are killed, as you probably know, because of human-elephant conflict, and they're going into farmland. And the farmers there will want to protect their crops and their families, understandably. So basically, this frequency tag is monitored the whole time by the rangers who do an amazing job, and there are lots of Maasai rangers as well. They know when the elephant is encroaching and going out of its usual feeding zone, and they will basically get in early and drive it back. So they alleviate elephant deaths that way. And as for hunting, nobody I met in the Maasai has any time for it anymore. We have our, our Western standpoint on it, but we don't know you know, exactly what you were saying about conservation and about protection, about protecting their own crops, their own villages. You know, We don't live with that reality. No, we don't. We don't day. live with any of the realities, and especially in India. If we look at the Indian elephant, there are lots of, um, as the pressure on land because of development grows, there are lots of communities very very poor communities who are being pushed you know the elephants are having to detour uh, and they forage they have a really wide foraging area so if you don't have the land mass for them to do that they're going to go into human communities and in India it's caused terrible problems in some regions because you can understand the locals going I'm going to kill the thing and then you've got the ivory trade as well which is you know under, underpinning this whole thing where people can make a make a few quid because we apparently have not been able as humanity to shut that down 
it shouldn't be beyond the or the wit of woman or man. You know, men can get involved if they need to, but it shouldn't be beyond the wit of them to come up with poverty alleviation strategies, development programs, and not have to kill elephants for ivory. This is quite a departure for you because you haven't been involved in this sort of level of animal conservation. No, is it exhausting worrying about? everything in the world because you do and you you walk I've known you for a long time you walk the walk and and talk the talk you practice what you preach is this just another thing for you to worry about well yeah we'll get on to that in a minute but this is is this just another thing for you to worry about no 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 because it makes more sense and I think if you look at the data about environmental degradation species loss it's pretty depressing it's very depressing but you also look at the data and not not data you look at the evidence on how people respond with solutions like i'm talking about the elephant collaring how entire populations can move who can shift a focus we've seen it in the uk recently on plastics you know and that is what makes you optimistic about the future and also solutions are now so accelerated so we've seen it with renewable energy so you know something like two-thirds of the globe's uh, power last year coming on stream so new new on stream power was renewable I could not have predicted that two three years ago and it's happened because of technolo- te- technological leaps and the digital economy and all sorts of things and you do see I know it's a bit of a cliche but when you go to Nairobi or wherever you see terrible poverty you see problems but you see a real kind of commitment to innovation and what's been really key for me especially going to Nairobi, was the amount of conversations I had with African women who were at the conference. There was one woman who came along with her little girl who watched cartoons throughout. But she could recognise the animals from the Disney Exactly, exactly. Her daughter has been used in a lot of the advertising for the UN, for example. So her daughter's a child model. And that's how this woman has got into environmental issues. And now she's like a really kind of amazing advocate uh, and a small business owner and all the rest of it. So uh, if you broaden this all out and you talk to more people and you invite more people into the discussion, it makes you feel a lot more positive. So although I seem to bang on about negative things all the time, I am 100% obsessed with talking to people about solutions. And as you know, the more you travel in a way, which is unfortunate because of the carbon burden, the more your eyes are opened to the solutions and to other people's stories and other people's perspectives. And, you know, we get things wrong. We make assumptions that are not true. And sometimes the quickest way to disavow yourself of those assumptions is to go and see them. I think that your your um, personal attitude, I'd say, about travel has changed in the last uh, few years because I, I seem to remember you feeling quite conflicted about travel. And I'm sure you still mm. do because mm. we are burning up the planet by mm. jetting off to the Maldives or, or anywhere sort of mm. long haul and short haul. I mean, just how much damage is being done and what can we do to limit that? Can we still travel? I don't want to stop travelling. I think you're absolutely spot on about my personal um, response to it. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second because I think it's not just me. I think it's a lot of um, climate change activists. And it, it is a problem because you do end up appeasing the aviation industry which is pretty much ducked out of any legislative controls any curbs on emissions now there are different airlines travel companies that are invested to a different degree in finding solutions you know we've had in the last 12 months we've had a solar flight for example we've had an electric plane we've had stuff that's rapidly accelerating in technology but kerosene is still the fuel of choice there's other stuff that's happened in the aviation industry over the years like really simple stuff like you know when a plane comes into land and then has to be cleaned and everything you know a few years ago like we're definitely within our traveling lifetimes 
they used to have to turn the entire plane on and start up all the engines so the cleaner could plug in the, the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> a bit like it was a cigarette you know, lighter. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, it was exactly crazy. So you'd be belching out all these blooming emissions and whatever airport, you know, Southampton or whatever, it's like, hello, please don't pump out these emissions like where we, and then they become local pollution. That doesn't happen anymore because, you know, somebody, thank God, has invented a docking station where you don't have to do that. So there's all sorts of remediative technology that's come on stream and simple solutions to big problems however we still can't have a clean flight from a normal charter passenger plane it's just not not happening and also we have a real problem with aviation which I won't get into the deep of it or the height of it but at at the stratosphere where planes have to fly there's a there's a phenomenon called radiative forcing so any emissions are exacerbated so you can times them by three four five some people say it's ten you know it depends on which research you look at but we have got a problem however it's a real issue because you know you've got family that live overseas you know part of your life is not in this country because of immigration and blended populations you know people need to travel and people just want a holiday in the simplest form on top of that yeah exactly i mean even if you're if you're being like a total puritan about it you would still need could i say with any certainty i will never fly again no because i have family in different parts of the world who i will need to see during my lifetime and their lifetime It's not a solution, really, to say you can't fly. Then there's the holidays, as you mentioned. And for many years, I was really, like, quite on one about this. A few years ago, we were talking about carbon budgets and stuff like that, which I still think is a kind of really interesting idea. So you would have a certain amount of emissions. I would have a certain amount of emissions. If you flew somewhere, you might have to buy some off me. And it would end up with people who didn't travel very much being wealthy in carbon emissions. So it would be like a redistributive thing. Sounds like a very good idea. David Miliband was really keen on it but we all know what happened there anyway so I was really kind of holding out for some solution like that and then if you wanted to ruin the planet or be a carbon criminal you're going to blooming play for it you know whatever however that that's all really gone by the wayside because there was no appetite really in the rich west for curbing our emissions in that sense and I think that moment has passed. I also think that after the Copenhagen climate talks in 2009 failed so spectacularly, a lot of climate change activists went sod it. They jumped on planes. They went off to Thailand or wherever to regroup. And they said, we need to approach this in a different way. And I think what happened was carbon emissions are very difficult for an individual to control because they're built into absolutely everything and I've previously written guides like diets how to reduce your carbon it is so complicated it's so hard to get a grip in a western economy in a capitalist economy so what we've had to do is almost give that pressure and those goals a mechanism of reducing carbon on our behalf which we have in the Paris Climate Treaty agreement and I think that is a kind of really amazing piece of architecture every country in the world is now signed up is that the one that Trump pulled out of yes but it's been designed in such a clever way that I think that it can withstand the four very unfortunate years of Trump or Stiltskin and hopefully regroup and hopefully we can stay on track it's looking very shaky it's very difficult to keep emissions below two degrees warming on 1990 levels whatever it is but it is the best thing that we have so what this is a really really long way of saying that in my mind and in the minds of a lot of carbon activists environmental activists we have to cede responsibility to this overarching structure And I'm sorry, to some people that will sound like appeasement of the aviation industry, 
but the reality is that people need to fly. I didn't really take a holiday abroad for like three or four years, and I was a miserable woman. <laughs> I really was. So how, what can we do, the I'm average not... family of four who want to go to sit on a beach in Mallorca in August? You know, what what can we do to make a little bit more beneficial or less harmful for the planet is there anything we can do yeah there's lots of things you can do and it's about being respectful while you're there isn't it and also respecting the limits of that the environmental so the planet should be dictating everything really it should be setting the limits and boundaries for everything and my job is to tell you what those boundaries are and what we have at our disposal as individual like normal families of four whatever to to actually mitigate our impact and one of the things that needs to be looked at is water use so if you are going to southern spain for example example that is a real issue because there is such water pressure that every time another golf course is built or another um, lot of luxury villas or whatever is um, it is a massive strain on the environment we, we want to make sure it's protected so I think any time that you can stay in somewhere that has the same eco values I think that's really really important is feeding in to local conservation local environmentalism that's really really important and one of the things that we've seen recently is anywhere that's plastic free or takes a very very strong handle on the plastic pandemic which is sweeping the world is really important especially in a coastal resort and nobody wants to swim around in little bits of plastic we all probably have by this point and, and it's eat really fish that's that's swallowed tons of plastic as well unfortunately given the quantities of plastic what's like five trillion little bits of fragments it's very difficult not to eat fish and also we found plastic fragments in honey we found it in beer you know it's everywhere we've looked for it we found it you're not going to be able to solve that but what we are doing is collectively coming together to make sure that we kind of turn the tide on plastics if we don't by 2050 there'll be more uh bits of plastic in the sea than fish Oh, it's terrifying. It's absolutely it's, terrifying. It's terrifying, but it's motivating. It, 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 to me, it, it's a really bad um, analogy, but it feels like the tide is turning. Yeah. You know, you've had campaigns mm. by surprising sources like the Daily Mail, you mm-hmm. know, to get people to reduce plastic. That might not be our newspaper of choice, but that is read by an awful lot of people, mm. and hopefully that will have some influence. And Iceland this week have said that they're stopping plastic in their own products was it yeah by 2023 that's Iceland the store not the country yes yeah the the country are actually quite good yeah they are they are I went to east eastern Iceland actually a few years ago I read your article years ago oh thank you and I went to a slow town it means that there are they imbibe this slow philosophy there's no like major brands or corporations allowed in and it was kind of amazing it was an amazing trip it was more amazing because of the wilderness there which is vast, as you know, if you've been there. And really, people get the wrong idea about that part of Iceland. For example, when I'd been there, there were three British students, they would be British, wouldn't they, who had tried to hike, this was winter, by the way, across the Midlands (laughs) of Iceland, so that across the wilderness. And they'd been rescued, not once, but three times. You know, Icelanders are so nice, but they did say, you know, come on, why do you people behave like this? <laughs> they'd also found in, they'd found some, a couple who were camping, who were Japanese, a young couple, 
and they had torn up quite a lot of ancient moss which had formed over millennia to make themselves a comfy mattress under their uh, tent. See, this is not what we should be doing if we want to travel responsibly. Those are two things that you could not do. And there's also, you know, going back to the question that you asked before about, you know, people going on their beach holiday in Mallorca or whatever, there is a school of body of research to show that that would have less impact than trekking off into the highlands. That's very interesting. Why? Because the infrastructure is there there already. Yeah, except in southern Spain, it's under immense pressure. So you don't always think that flying long haul to the Maldives to live in a treehouse is actually going to be a more eco... The resort might be branded as eco. Pound for pound, your carbon might be better spent in Benidorm in a hotel that's existed since the 70s and takes up actually quite small space. It's unfortunate that the only eco resort I've ever stayed at was the only place that I refused to write a review about because it was just hideous. And it was nothing to do with this eco, with its eco credentials. It was in the Maldives and I'd, I'd spend half the week in this beautiful, luxury, inclusive resort and done a lovely travel film from it for Sky. And the next half of the week was at this eco resort, which was about 10 grand a night. I mean, I'm not paying wow. it, I'm a uh, it, it would have been about 10 grand a night to wow. stay in this private villa that we had with our own yeah. butler. But this place just had a major problem with mosquitoes. I mean, I've travelled the world and been bitten badly by mosquitoes. This made me feel ill, like I was going to die. And after dark, nobody went out on the resort. I wanted to leave the Maldives. And they said, uh, you know, so when are you going to write up the review? I was like, I'm really sorry, I will only... Right, you know, travel is about being positive. It's not you. I, I refuse negative to write reviews this, are um, the best. Yeah, but it doesn't really happen. Reading. Yeah, me too, probably. But it doesn't really happen in travel because no, travel right. is uh, very profitable. Because they've already for, paid for you to go. Yeah. Well, you see, I've about. written a couple of of very barbed reviews for travel. Maybe that's why I don't get invited, get invited to do any back. travel. Yes, I have been to the Maldives twice. It is a very difficult place to visit because um, politically, it's in a very Uh, fragile state democracy is not valued there I have a couple of friends there who are journalists who are threatened and um, very seriously threatened and um, I mean I'm talking like you know they fear for their lives and frequently have to leave the capital Mali so there is a massive problem with repression and free speech Um, the status of women there is also very problematic but the tourist dollar is incredibly is vital really um, to communities who still frankly recovering from the tsunami it also has the most incredible marine ecosystem which has been irrefutably damaged it's sinking isn't it by all accounts it's sinking yes and there are so many compelling reasons to go and see it from an environmental context and so many compelling reasons not to go from a political context the last time i went i went to where they signed you remember when they signed the climate treaty underwater underwater yeah Yeah. so i went to that exact spot did you you go did you dive no i don't dive and i will learn to snorkel in the maldives which is quite full-on again because you're on the edge of the ocean shelf and there's whale sharks and stuff like that so it's it's a it's a very uh, you get a sensory overload the resort that i went to i very much respect and that's uh called suniva and they have one in thailand and i think two in the maldives and they have over years many many years painstakingly created this resort these this group very small group of resorts it's the most holistic circular economy 
um, stuff that I've seen in a hotel environment, in a, in a resort environment. There is no plastic allowed. There never has been. I mean, they have been fanatical about that. And I hope they don't mind me calling them fanatics, but in a good sense. It's a good thing to be fanatical about. It is, it is. And you have to be. And in, in a place where everything is flown out, that is quite something. I mean, to the extent that they have their own glass blowing facility to use the polystyrene boxes that come in. So they employ, one of the girls was from Leeds, actually. And she, so she, and I mean, the temperature there, it must have been 42 degrees. So, you know, fair play for blowing glass in those temperatures. But they produce everything there. You know, like every tumbler, every plate, everything that's made of glass they produce in that workshop. I've got to know the staff quite well because they employ quite a few sustainability graduates from Cambridge. Like, they spend money on this. Well, I hope they expand more because they really sound amazing. Well, the problem is with that, it's hard to expand more because it's hard to mainstream those sort of values because they're so expensive and they require such dedication and commitment. We went to their new resort in a different atoll and... This resort has been agricultural and is the home of very large crabs. Now, Eva does not eat meat. She's vegan. And she will not have these crabs moved, harmed, damaged in any way. Never mind eaten. It's an absolute no. So these big crabs rule the roost. And they really do. I mean, they come out and they just, like, show you their pincer. And they know (laughs) they're in charge. And this is in a luxury holiday environment throughout your work you've been to some unusual destinations that aren't necessarily uh, going to be a holiday yeah. um, a lot of factories I imagine yeah um, textile factories yeah. and also with Greenpeace what did you do with Greenpeace oh yes I went on Rainbow Warrior 2 so not the one that was blown up in by the French Secret Service uh, in New Zealand but the one that was after that they had just been thrown out of Marseille by the French fishermen, Persane fishermen, who use huge trawler nets, which basically drag in every sort of living creature for miles and miles and miles. Uh, And they weren't best pleased with Greenpeace at the time, who were campaigning about this. Since then, Greenpeace have made so much traction, and the world of sustainable fishing has moved to such an extent, that I I wonder if these days they would be thrown out of Marseille or blockaded. I think they're out there floating on the boat thinking, what should we do now? No, there's definitely (laughs) more work to do, but I wonder like if if it's a little bit more collaborative. Maybe not, because those fishermen are pretty tough and pretty anti-environmental campaigning. So anyway, they've come into Cartagena in Spain, where they were in port for a while I joined them there and we went out and we did they did some actions around tuna ranching uh, tuna farms out there and on board was a brilliant scientist marine scientist called Roger Grace from New Zealand and every night it's quite kind of chilled on board in a way you have this lecture the way the day works is you have a lecture in the morning from the captain on deck telling you what to do if you get um, taken by the police telling you what to do in prison and it's, it's very sobering doesn't sound like your standard cruise <laughs> not a standard cruise which was what I was more familiar with and I was like oh right okay and what you do about getting a lawyer and blah 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 so I was thinking well this is going to be an interesting day I've been on nights out that actually should have those mornings (laughs) especially in Brighton right and then um and then you kind of do a lot of maintenance because Rainbow Warrior 2 was not in great shape so there was a lot of painting to be done and of course I was the sort of hapless journalist who kept trying to have conversations with people and leaning against the paint so I came off with a lot of paint stripes all over my clothes and then I actually stayed on board the other journalists got 
shipped off to stay in a hotel, but I was allowed to stay on board. And the people work incredibly hard, the activists work incredibly hard, and some of them have been on boats for a long, long time. So they will get up at 4am to start their shift and swap out the toilets and stuff like that. It's not glamorous, it's really hard work. And then in the evening, this guy Roger, this marine biologist, would basically sit me down and explain to me how the oceans work and what happens when you fish out a major predator like tr- like tuna. And I'll cut to the chase here. It collapses. It's a bit listeners. worrying. It is very <laughs> worrying. So it, it was about learning about all the ecology. And then we would go off and we would do these stunts where the divers would get in and unfurl the banners around the big tuna farms and then they'd take pictures and then they'd circulate those internationally and stuff like that. So it wasn't there wasn't anything dynamic happening. Like they weren't staring down whaling boats. What it did was give me a bit of insight into how those people live their lives and the the captain at that time Mike Finken he is probably one of the most amazing people I've ever come across incredibly calm you know Sea Shepherd you know they're like they're they're quite a famous organization who still go on and take on whaling ships it's very sort of you know macho testosterone but they have a new boat which is an anti-whaling boat and it's funded by I think the Danish lottery so the people's lottery I think I'm right in saying Denmark is maybe it's Holland. Maybe it's <laughs> somewhere Holland. foreign. Somewhere yeah, on the somewhere other world. side. It's not, about it. it's not about it being foreign, it's about it being progressive. Yes, yeah. So imagine here the National Lottery going to fund an anti-whaling ship. It's a great idea, mm. but it would never happen because those sort of subjects are still very much up for debate here when many other cultures we've already decided not in our name. You do a lot of fun stuff as well. And this mm. is, I mean, this the, well, your fashion was work. Yeah, that was sound like great fun. Was yeah. fun yeah. Um, your, your fashion work is something you're very passionate about mm. and I know you've written books on it. Um, that wasn't fun. No, it must be a lot of hard work. In fact, I remember you disappearing yeah. while we used to spend hours in Brighton, disappear off to work while we were oh, like no, out that drinking. That's what made it really yeah. hard. You made it, you made it really hard Thank for me you, to I, write my book. I try my best. <laughs> and you started off with Livia First, the Green Carpet Challenge, which saw you go yes. to the Oscars. Yes, I did. I went in 2011, actually, and I didn't really have a clue who anybody was. And it was just a really nice jolly, to be completely honest. I'd never been to LA before. I haven't been since. And I got to see it on the night when it sort of all happens. And there's things, you know, culturally that sort of strike you. The fact that when it rains, and it really rained that year, it was like people didn't know what to do with themselves. And I, of course, I'm, I'm all right with, live with all the time. Exactly. I'm like, okay, so you get this thing called an umbrella and <laughs> carry on as you would. Um, and don't wear suede shoes. But I felt like I was sort of dispensing advice. But I didn't really... It was such a a, a full-on, concentrated amount of time. I didn't even get to see the sign. Hollywood sign. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. And as my friend who works in in, in LA a lot, because she works in the film industry, said to me, you haven't really been to LA. And I do feel like that, unfortunately, about some places. And I feel like the places where I have spent a lot more time... Bangladesh I went with a fair trade brand my friend Safia Mini who started a brand called People Tree and I've seen some kind of amazing parts of Bangladesh particularly in the north some of the villages that are really on the move and where people are coming back and building houses and schools um, and more facilities we were going to do a photo shoot while we were there we have this wonderful Japanese model with us and there was a in Bangladesh in the north they grow a lot of flowers absolutely beautiful flowers and they look like hollyhocks or something there was like a whole communal allotment in the centre of this village full of these things we went to bed that night there was a mini cyclone claimed a lot of lives in the region 
in the morning everything was flattened all their crops were gone and it is how communities adjust so quickly to these really dramatic weather events because they experience them all the time i mean bangladesh had a really terrible cyclone in the early 90s and there's actually a connection between the gulf war and the burning of the oil fields there is some um, uh, climatic action that can increase the incidences of these things happening an action somewhere else it really can have a devastating impact on almost always the most marginal marginalized people in the most vulnerable communities and when you're actually there and you experience it it's it's horrible you know what do you say what do you say but normally I find that we're pretty useless and that the people are rallying around other people in those communities going, oh, I'm so sorry about your fashion shoot. Uh, but they, you know what was interesting about that? They made it happen because it was really important to them. So they made it happen and they took us somewhere else. And the, and the sort of generosity of people and how resourceful they are and how solutions orientated they are is always really humbling, I think. You recently made a documentary for uh, Radio 4 from Milan. Yeah, so we did something about the future of fashion uh, from a sustainability point of view. We started out in Milan at the Green Carpet Fashion Awards, run by my friend Livia, and it was a, just a beautiful evening. It was a bit like one of those Gatsby nights. It was still quite warm, and I was standing by the red carpet, you know, as you do as a, as a journalist, trying to interview people, and you're always on the wrong side, and you never get to talk to anybody. And I watched across the red carpet a succession of really famous, amazing people like Giselle, and Andrew Garfield all go in and I wasn't able to get to them. So in one sense, it was a disaster. We did have a really nice night and it was in La Scala. So you were in like the proper little box. Like I don't really know much about opera. I'm not an opera buff or anything. But those little boxes built hundreds of years ago, you can see from every different angle. Like quite often I go to the cinema and I can't see properly. How come they can do it then? It was just all set up to succeed in performance terms as a venue. And also Milan, I have been before in the winter and it was quite grey and I didn't really get it. And on that night, I just got it. I got it as a home of fashion and I got it as a home of glamour. And Italians are so funny because there's lots of their homegrown stars there just wearing the most bizarre concoctions. They're fabulous, aren't they? <laughs> really fabulous. Really, really fabulous. Nobody more fabulous than Giselle, though. Wow. Who also in gave... person, I bet she looks quite astounding. I've met a lot of supermodels like that, and they're so... You've met a lot of supermodels. <laughs> Let's just rewind. When oh, down met... my local park, you know. <laughs> no, I guess maybe I haven't Shipping met a lot of uh, supermodels. I've seen a lot of supermodels. In magazines? And they're... No, in travelling, actually. I've seen... Um, Elle really? McPherson in Where'd Paris. You... I've stood next stay? to Naomi Campbell. I've stood next to a lot of supermodels. You see, I very briefly I purposely don't stand anywhere near them. <laughs> but they're so they're they're almost ethereal. They've got such long limbs mm. and beautiful complexions, and they they yeah. just look almost out of this world. Yeah, they make you feel really inadequate. Well, that's why. Why do you stand next to them? That's where you're going wrong. <laughs> So where do you go for fun? I know you like to have fun, Lucy. Where do you travel for fun? Travel for fun? That's a really interesting concept. I don't know if I do travel for fun, and maybe I should. Well, i tell you where I went for a conference. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> Which I want to go back to for fun, like as in not in work, and that was Thailand. I mean, I basically travel to eat if I'm travelling on my own time. I went to Peru, that wasn't on my own time actually, on a press trip, and... My God, is it possible to eat bad food there? Because I ate everywhere, all the time, 
from Lima right the way through up into the north, up into the hills, uh, in tiny, tiny villages. And I did not have one bad meal. Did you try a guinea pig? No. <laughs> Tell you what we did have, we had some uh, pisco sour. It's mixed with egg whites, isn't it? And we went to one village, you have it everywhere, obviously, and they were mixing it in a blue bucket. And the translator, who was from Lima, said to me, I hope that bucket didn't have pesticide in it. I don't know if anyone's Which we all hoped, ever really. said before you've had a drink. I know. Because there's not much you can do about it. Because you know, have you you've... drunk the drink already? Well, no, we had to drink it because the guy was doing it in front of us. And it's like, you know, you can't go. This is another thing about politeness when travelling. That really tested me. Yeah, it gets me. you into all sorts of scrapes, especially when you're, you know, like I, I don't know what you're doing about this at the moment, but when I don't eat meat and things like that yeah, and they yeah, bring yeah. out a dish and, yeah. you know, you don't know, you know, should I, should I just eat the meat? Should I just yeah. shut up and do it? And obviously if you're starving somewhere and that's the only option you would, but when it's about offending the local people or the local customs, you, you, it puts you in a, a difficult situation. Yeah, but how far would you go before you said, actually, I think that receptacle's had poison in it, <laughs> so I'm probably not going to do that. But I didn't. I went, oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So I think that says more about me. But the You meat, survived. I did survive because they haven't had pesticide in the bucket, but and presumably they knew that would not be a good idea. No, I don't <laughs> eat meat, but it has got me into some really... Like in Peru, for example, I'd say I don't eat meat, and they say, that's fine, I'm going to kill this chicken for you. That's all right. I'm just going to kill this just pig. You'll hardly notice. You'll hardly even notice. It's fine. But what I like yeah. about countries like Peru and Argentina as well is that they eat everything from the animal. And I, I kind of wish yeah. that we did that here. Mm. You know, if you're going to, don't just have the steak or the nice bit and leave it. You know, eat the snouts, eat the, use the hooves. Snouts? Use the, they do. You're going to order snout off a menu, are you? I've had pig cheeks back when I used to eat meat. That's a big difference. Well, you can have all of this stuff in, in East London. Yeah, you. you can. Yeah. By the way, whether you want it or not. You know, the place I really want to go is Great Blasket Island, which is an island off Ireland. I've never heard of it. There's a book. I grew up partly in Ireland, and there's a book that you have to read in Irish, which was hard for me because I don't speak Irish, um, but I had to sit through the classes. And it's about this woman called Peg, and she's a very miserable woman, and she lives on Great Blasket. And there's other books as well because it had a lot of poets and stuff. It was evacuated, I think, in the 1930s by De Valera because they had cholera. So he's like, shut this down. I'm shutting this down. You're all getting off the island. And and now it's just got some donkeys, and but it's got like whales and dolphins around it. The sea life is incredible. And there's still, still some of the cottages and stuff like that. But it's really like one of the wildest places that's near to us, which is now uninhabited. And I'm desperate to go there. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Can you think of a, a, a surely there must be some sort of work reason, as you don't seem to travel for fun. You work this is for. the point, isn't it? And I think that that is a really good point that you raised. I'm always motivated to go somewhere because someone else has told me to do it. So I don't really know the luxury of thinking, I could go anywhere in the world, let's pick somewhere. I would also um, like to go to Bali again, because I went there for work, and I thought it was an incredible place. I went east, and why I would recommend going east is for two reasons. First of all, there's not there's that many people there. Secondly, there's not enough people there. So they opened up the Gili Islands, which is near um, where the, the volcano is, can't remember the name of it anyway the Gili Islands you didn't really used to be able to go to it's a real intrepid off the track thing now there's hotels there and there's loads of day trips so people go up to Ahmed in the east and they just get out of there as soon as they arrive they get out of the boat across to the Gili Islands consequently Ahmed is on its knees 
Uh, there's no work. There are not much, not many fish to be had anymore because it's been overfished. Um, you know, you talk to the guys there and they really need tourism so badly. And we went there and we absolutely loved it. And there's uh, a really lovely couple of hotels. There's a hotel run by some Dutch people, which is just gorgeous. Um, so I would make a plea for people to go to East Bali if they go there. It's very quiet. It's not for the party, the Australian party animal, because they'll all be in, in the south. And then you can go up to Ahmed. That's what I would do. And I'd do it again. Normally with people, I go back to their childhood and everything, but we've had such a good conversation about adult stuff. I never travelled as a child. I just went to Wales in a caravan. Oh, North Wales is lovely, though. I did a lot of North Wales as a child. And Ireland, obviously, because my family was partly there. So I used to go backwards and forwards and do all that. But I used to stay with my cousins, and I hope they don't mind me saying, but we didn't always get on terribly well. I I love them now. Um, I wouldn't say Limerick's like my number one holiday destination. But Skibbereen in West Cork is beautiful. And North Wales, North Wales, North Wales, I wish it wasn't, I wish I wasn't so far from it because I absolutely love Wales. Because when I used to live in the Northwest, when we, when you used to go to North Wales, like the Clin Peninsula, anywhere around there, you'd go on the beach and pretty much your entire road would, for the two weeks in August, would be lined up almost in house order just have your wind break up you know it's pretty much the same I mean it was like so funny Hello, like, Mrs. Jones. yeah everyone like migrated but because that that was our holiday experience growing up I'm really good with cold water and British beaches I mean I would literally go in now if I see sea it's hard for me not to have a little splash <laughs> and my little nieces who you know some of them have grown up going away going abroad like normal people They'd just be like, what are you doing? I'm not going in there. You're going to be one of those crazy old ladies that goes swimming on Christmas Day and the snow. Yeah, I'm I'm really working my way up to that. That's my ambition anyway. So my last question is a question I can't afford to ask, but I'm going to ask you anyway. This is intriguing. It's about music, actually. Oh. I don't know you have quite questionable taste in music, <laughs> I think, as I recall. But... She means terrible. You're just being polite. Uh, yes. Um, I've got t- shocking taste You in music. do have shocking taste in music, which is why it's quite an intriguing question for you. But um, music means so much to me, and it's a big part of... You've got good taste. When you travel, I love listening to music. If you had to recall a song that yeah. meant something to you in terms of travel that you've listened to when you've been on a beautiful beach or when you've been... At uh, you know a mm. factory in Bangladesh or wherever you, you think go. I listen to music yeah. in a factory in Bangladesh. <laughs> could you pinpoint a song that we could end with? Were we to afford a song to play? But we just t- have to think listen, of it in our heads. I can tell you one, but you, yeah, you're definitely not going to be able to afford it. Or you can maybe do a version of it. And they can't even sing it. It's not going to reflect well on me. <laughs> I think that's why I asked you. Clearly <laughs> ruined okay. any street so, cred you had left. I don't have any. The the songs, the album, which I can't remember which album it was actually, but the song that I really, really remember going away for the first time abroad with my family, late teens, and we went to Gran Canaria and I remember just being on a sunbed next to the pool. By the way, we went from Ireland where it never stopped raining to Grand Canary. I was like, wow, is this what people do? Is this a life that like you can wear a bikini and like lie outside? And I just listened to the bangles <laughs> nonstop. I love, I, I'm unashamed. I love the bangles. And it was whatever album Eternal Flame was on. It had a Walkman, I had a bikini, I had a sunbed. And I was like, this is 
living. I can hear that and I can feel that sun and I can listen to mm. whatever the little one that had the good voice that sang your Susanna Hobbs. That's it. Well yeah. done. See, I properly, I properly love the bag horse. Oh, yeah. well, thank you. That's lovely. I'll go home and listen to it because I can't afford to play it. You could sing that. <laughs> Maybe you can't actually oh, sing yeah. it. Yeah. What if we change the word? Oh, no, because we still have the tune. <laughs> I don't think we're going to start writing any music. Thank no. you very much oh, for coming on my podcast. It was a pleasure. What an honour to be on your podcast. I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Thanks so much to my old friend Lucy, to Azimuth Post Production in London Soho for the use of the studio. And thanks so much to you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.